Please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And I have not yet decided, excuse me, Matthew 16, verse 13. I have not yet decided whether I will preach uh, verses 24 and on next week. Uh, But I want to read the whole section for us to get a uh, better grasp of the flow and and the... Christ teaching to the disciples and to us here in this text. So we'll read from verses, verse 13 all the way to verse 28. Well, for the reading of God's word, if you would stand. Uh, Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they, said, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever, would, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Please be seated. Well, Serena and I recently celebrated our 14th year anniversary as husband and wife. Um, We dated for three and a half years, four years prior to that. Um, Looking back, we had a time to reminisce about our early years of dating and courtship. And I I was profoundly shocked at how little that I knew and how how ignorant I was about women. Um, growing up, I had, I had 
you know, this view that my perspective was the perspective. My view was the right view. There was really no other way to see life, no other, no other way to interpret life. Uh, no one really challenged me. No one really confronted me in this. I didn't know even I had this view. I just thought my perspective was not only the only perspective, but it was the most true, the most right perspective. We began to date, get engaged and married, and through that process, I discovered that no, there is another way to see life, another perspective, and not only was it equally valid, maybe it was more true. So we would, we would talk, and, and for Seren, um, she states a problem or a difficulty, and my, my way of dealing with problems is solving it. And so I would give her like a 30-minute sermon outline on what her problem is, diagnosing it, biblical principles, and like 16 applications that she can follow to solve this problem. And her response wasn't one of joy and repentance. <laughs> it was like uh, Pharaoh to the uh, miracles of Moses. Her heart hardened when I gave her my perspective. After about 100 times of this, <laughs> we began to dialogue about what was happening, and I, I realized, wow, there is another angle to this, that when my wife shares a problem, it's not for me to solve her problem. I want to be a Superman. I want to be Batman. I want to be Spider- go on, Wolverine, so on, right? I want to I be the one that you know, destroys the evil powers and stands and protects and saves this uh, damsel in distress and have her like say, oh, my hero, that's what I want. But that's not what she wants when she shares a difficulty. She wants me to listen, right? What? Like, listen? How does that help anybody? But <laughs> for, for the female gender, it helps them when you just listen, you know, you hold their hand and you just keep listening. I don't understand it, but for them, that's their perspective. Um, way my wife responds to um, stress. For me, when I have stress, I disengage, I disconnect, I go into this uh, man cave, I, and my partner is you know, the Lakers, and I just hide myself. The last thing I wanna do is talk. That's, my, that's all I do in my ministry, talk. So like this afternoon, if you're not, you wanna talk to me, I don't wanna talk to you, because I've been talking for two hours. So when I have stress, I want to go and you know, watch a movie or watch uh, you know, a- ABC Disney or whatever. I'll watch, uh, watch the lake. I don't want to talk. My wife, when she has stress, she wants to talk. She wants to connect. She wants to engage. And so before, I thought that was the wrong way to handle stress. <laughs> and I was learning, well, that's just another way of handling stress. Um, I'll share one more. I shared this before as well. Um, my... my I was taught you should say sorry all the time. I, you, you, you mess up, you say sorry. So I would mess up with Seren and I would say sorry, I apologize. And she would be very resident, reticent to say sorry. She almost, she rarely said sorry. And after a you know, while we got into this conflict and uh, it was because my definition of sorry is I feel bad. I, I'm sorry, right? 
You know, if it's a sin, I, I confess my sin. But sorry is like, it's not sin. I offended you, I hurt you, unintentional, not premeditated. It wasn't high-handed. It wasn't sin, but all the, nevertheless, I hurt you, so I'm sorry. But I know I'm going to do it again because I'm a fallen human being. Serene's definition is, well, you should only say sorry if you're resolved in your heart that you will never do it again. And so because she knew she would do, it, do these things again, she didn't say sorry. And when I said sorry, it would provoke her to anger because I would keep doing it again and again. So in my attempts at reconciliation, it would actually fuel to the fire and it would just... So through our communication, we realized, wow, it's not, right? There are two perspectives. There are two ways. And I, and I'm learning that more and more in my marriage life. All of that was the segue that there is a great difference on how men view things and women view things, right? And it colors maybe everything in life. Greater than that difference is the difference between how God sees our lives, God's perspective on ministry, God's perspective on on this world and our perspective. Right. Very different. They are, I think there's not two differences that's greater in this world. They are diametrically opposed to each other. And they are not, as you all could have guessed, on equal footing. Isaiah 55, this is how God spoke through Isaiah 55, eight through nine. He makes it clear my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God makes it clear. There are two different ways, two different thoughts, two different perspectives, but they're not equal. God's way is higher, he, our ways are low, his way is right, our ways are wrong. You can say it, um, God-centered perspective or man-centered perspective. Martin Luther coined it this way, theology of the cross, uh, in Latin, theologia crucis, versus theology of glory. In fact, this perspective predated uh, the 95 theses that he uh, nailed to the Wittenberg door. This is the perspective that birthed those 95 points. The perspective that birthed the Reformation. What is this? It's not a particular doctrine. It's not a doctrine of God, man, election, you know, angels or end times. It is a certain way of viewing all these doctrines. It is a certain perspective that causes you to come to different conclusions about these doctrines. The essence of this perspective, this theology of the cross, is that God comes to us. God has come to us in a way that we least expected. We expected God to come to us in power, in glory, in might, in majesty. We expected God to come to us in strength. 
with authority, like a king, like a mighty warrior. But in the scriptures, we are shocked to find that God, the apex of God's revelation, the height through which, the, 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 the core through which he revealed himself is not through power and might, but it's through shame, it's through weakness, it's through suffering and death on the cross. And this caused people to stumble. This caused, this is why people rejected Jesus. It was uh, an unpalatable, unacceptable Lord, Savior, God and King. If Jesus had come to us as a king, the world would, would have accepted him, would have received him. But in the manner in which he came was unacceptable, so they rejected him. In fact, they stumbled over him. First uh, Corinthians 1, 22 through 25, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, the most shameful spectacle in all of human history, our Lord and Savior was publicly shamed, crucified on a cross, cursed by God and cursed by man. Therefore, he is a scandal, a stumbling block, a hindrance to the Jews. And Moriah, moronic, absurdity, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those of us who are called Jews and Greeks, for, for us, this uh, weakness, this folly, this stumbling block, for us, it is the, the Christ, the cross, is the power of, it's the dunamis of God. It's the wisdom of God. And it shows that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The essence of all religion is theology of glory. The essence of all religion is triumphalism. That the church, this religion, is true because it's powerful. Because it has many adherents. Because of its authority and influence. Um, so religion seeks to impress people by their heroic works of asceticism or supernatural abilities. Religions seek to impress and influence people by the size of their buildings, right? collections of relics and special hidden mysterious rituals. Uh, religions seek to, through theology of glory, impart this glory to people and say, if you will follow us, we will give you a better life. Your best life now will help you to improve your life, your family, your relationships, your health, your finances. You will experience this glory in your own life as you follow our principles, follow our ways. You experience the glory of God. And so, sadly, many churches ascribe to this perspective as well. Therefore, in this perspective of theology of glory, uh, grace is always supplemental. Whether in salvation or in the Christian life, grace always takes the passenger seat, never the driver's seat. 
theology of glory is based on human works, human righteousness, human ability. It is really based on belief in works-based righteousness. Theology of the cross is completely opposite. And this theology of glory is so um, pervasive in our, in, our, in our hearts. It's such a deep and rooted a malady of the human soul that I hope that even as you leave this morning, you will see the vestiges of this theology of glory in, in all different areas of your life. This, uh, this, this conflict, this war, this, this battle between these two ideologies are seen clearly in Matthew 16. In our passage presented before us this morning, we see uh, this collision between uh, man-centered perspective and God-centered perspective about the identity of Christ, about the source of that knowledge of Christ's identity, and how the church will be built and established, and how we are to therefore live in light of this. Two opposing perspectives on all these questions. Let's go to Matthew 16, verse 13. We are at the climax of Jesus' ministry. Uh, we're at the last six months of our Lord's three-year ministry. Um, for the first half, for the first year and a half, our Lord spent much time in public uh, ministering to the masses, preaching, teaching, performing miracles, dialoguing and debating with uh, the religious leaders of Israel. After a year and a half, there is a discernible shift in his ministry. There is a turning away from the masses. He's constantly uh, going away from the masses and sequestering himself with the 12. He is focused on ministering to them and building them up for the climax that he knows about when he goes to Calvary. This is at this point. He is six months away from the cross. Now he gathered his disciples away from Jerusalem, 25 miles northeast of Sea of Galilee. He's a district of Caesarea Philippi. Um, it is a beautiful, amazing place. My wife and I, we uh, toured Israel with our seminary um, 10 years ago when I graduated seminary. And, uh, we actually went to Caesarea Philippi. It's a beautiful, picturesque place. At that time, dominated by cultic religion. Jesus gathered the disciples together, and he had two questions for them. They're connected, very similar, but they are two distinct questions. The first question is, verse 13b, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he's referring to, to himself. What is... If, what is the word on the street? Uh, what, what are, what are, who do they think I am, my identity? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This is the first contrast between the two perspectives. Uh, theology of glory, man-centered perspective of Jesus is that Jesus is a godly man, that he is a good example to follow. 
the people, I think, largely thought they were uh, honoring Jesus by saying this. And maybe to even some of the disciples, they were maybe um, esteeming him, praising Jesus, right? I mean, think about it. If like, if, so, if you're a care group leader and then you overheard a discussion among your care group members and there's a new guy came to your care group, how would you describe your care group leader? Oh, you know what? My care group leader, he's like John the Baptist. No, he's, someone, no, he's like Elijah, right? He's, oh, he's maybe Jeremiah, or definitely one of the prophets. If you were the character, you might blush, right? You might, you know, feel kind of, wow, I never thought of myself as John the Baptist. Like Elijah, man, that's kind of intense. But hey, if that's what people say, <laughs> there must be some truth to it. The disciples weren't saying this to demean Jesus. And I, I would think the crowds, they weren't trying to demean Christ at all. For anyone else, it would be a great, great honor. But that is the perspective of theology of glory. They cannot de- deny his miraculous works. They cannot deny his holiness, his purity, his integrity. So they have to ascribe to him some measure of respect and honor. Um, that's why even Nicodemus in John 3 said, even among the Pharisees, the talk is you are from God. It is undeniable because of the things that you are doing. Pontius Pilate, after interrogating Jesus, even he had to say, I find no guilt in this man. Napoleon said this, I know men, and Jesus was no mere man. A philosopher Diderot said, Jesus is unsurpassed. German rationalist Strauss said that Jesus was the highest model of religion. John Stuart Mill said Jesus is the guide of humanity. French atheist Renan said the greatest among the sons of men. Robert Owens has said he is the irreproachable one. So people have to give him some respect and honor, but that is theology of glory and that is blasphemy. These statements aren't honoring to Jesus. They are calling him a liar. They are blaspheming him. Jesus is not merely one of the prophets. Theology of the cross says this, that Jesus Christ is not just a godly man. He's not merely a good example for us to follow. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. See, after Jesus asked this question, he asked them again, that you in verse 15 is plural. Who do you all say that I am? I've just heard from you what the people say. Well, I want to ask you a direct question. And in the Greek, this plural you is in the emphatic position. I want to know, I want to hear from you. Who do you say that I am? And Peter as the leader of the disciples, as a spokesperson, raised his voice and with faith he declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, Christos in the Greek. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mishiach, 
Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. Jews believed, and they spoke of this Messiah that was set apart for office, set apart to fulfill the three offices in Israel, the king, the high priest, and the prophet. This Messiah would fulfill all these three offices in perpetuity, for eternity, forever. He is the anointed one, the priests and prophets. They were kings as well. They're anointed with oil to be set apart for that office. So they would anoint the king with oil and say, Saul, you are not the king of Israel. They would anoint the high priest. You are not the high priest of Israel. Well, this anointed one will be anointed by God through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be given in unending measure. He'll be set apart by God, John 3.30, and God would give him the Holy Spirit without measure to fulfill in that one person all these three offices for eternity. And so the Israelites waited for that Mashiach, waited for their anointed one, their Christos, and Peter is saying, you are the Christ. You are the one that we've been waiting for all these years to be the king that would not fail God, not fail us. You are the one that would be the high priest who will stand before us and the thrice holy God. You will be the holy prophet who will declare not just the law to us, but will declare God's grace, God's love to us. You are our long-awaited Messiah. You are not just a precursor. You're not the one that made the way for the Messiah, like Elijah, like John the Baptist. No, you are the fulfillment of all the prophets of the old. You are the Christ and not only that, you are the Son of God, the Son of the living God. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2-7. This king that was to come and this king of Israel is not just a king. He is also at the same time Son of God. Psalm 2-7, I will tell of the decree the Lord Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so for, for Peter to say this, this was a heart-stopping testimony. This was, I mean, this was like, I, I half believe the other disciples took a step back at the hearing of what Peter had said because their whole life they've been reared to believe that that's blasphemy. The distinguishing characteristic of the Israelite people was, that, was their monotheism. That's what separated them from all the neighboring nations. Everyone else were polytheists. The Jews believed in the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That was their essential faith system. It was based on that God is one. And this was why they were so persecuted by all the nations surrounding them. This is why they were called atheists by the Roman government and they were so persecuted by the, by the uh, ruling power of that, of that time. This was why the Jewish leaders in John 10, 33 sought to stone Jesus because for them, this was an unspeakable blasphemy. 
for anyone to say that you are God's son, homoousas, you're the same essence, nature, substance of God. You are claiming to be God himself. For anyone to say that about himself or for anyone to say that about someone else, that was blasphemy. And there was only one consequence of such a heinous sin, and that was death. Immediate death by stoning, prescribed by Moses. And so the religious leaders, when they heard Jesus say in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one, they picked up stones. And Jesus said, I performed all these miracles. For which of these miracles are you seeking to stone me? And they said, no, we're not trying to stone you because of these miraculous works. We're stoning you, seeking to stone you because of blasphemy. You claim to be God by saying that you are God's son. So for Jews, they were reared from infancy of this distinct truth. And here is Peter. He rises, he speaks with faith, and he testifies, and he declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here is the dramatic difference. Right? The one way that man elevates himself is to lower Jesus. It's a backdoor way to promote our own glory. If we could diminish Jesus' holiness or his deity, his divinity in any way, his grace, his power, then we elevate ourselves by that process. That's theology of glory. The theology of the cross says, no, Jesus is unique. He is singular. He is unlike anyone who has ever lived is living or will live. He is alone in human history in that he is the only Messiah and he is the true and only son of the living God. The second difference, the second contrast between these two perspectives is the source of this truth. The man-centered view, verse 17, our Lord alludes to this. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood, referring to man's work, man's abilities or man's capabilities. He's saying, you've not gained this through works of the flesh. Theology of glory believes the otherwise. Man's inner view believes that believing in biblical truth is by works of the flesh. It's works of the flesh. It is uh, that resident pride that manifests itself to, to think that we can figure out anything, that we can figure out, understand, and understand even spiritual truth. That if I just work hard enough, study long enough, read enough books, if I suffer enough, then I'll understand these, these truths of Scripture. The other side is the truths that I understand, the faith that I have today, the maturity that I have, is the result of my works, is the result of my righteousness, my study, my reading of books, going to church, going to Bible study, going to retreats, so I get the glory. And the result is a lot of pride, a lot of judgment, People that are younger in the faith, there's a lot of just, just looking down at them, judging them, 
pointing out their faults, the reason you don't get it because you you're not disciplined enough, the reason I get it is I'm more disciplined than you. And it, it creates all kinds of false idols in our hearts. It creates this kind of restlessness where we, when we see ourselves less mature than we, we ought, we, we want to work harder, study more. We're discontent in the wrong way. And our unbelief gets the better of us and we find ourselves striving in the flesh as if we can grow as Christians through our works rather than through faith. It does uh, awful things in ministry as well. I, I can talk about this guy because he's not here. He's uh, in Czech Republic right now. So it'll take him a few weeks to at least get here and talk to me, so it's okay. Um, so John Ree right, uh, Susan's brother, um, for many years living in sin. And, and Susan's been praying for him since he was born. <laughs> that God would grant him uh, faith in Christ. So we were praying for him with, with her here and there, and she told us he's, he agreed to come to church this Sunday. James, John's coming to church. Uh, can you talk to him? So it was a few years ago, I, pre- I preached, and he sat in the last row. As soon as they said amen, he walked, bolted for the doors. This very room. So Susan asked me, I'm the pastor, I should do these things, right? So I run after him, I catch him right before the parking lot, and like, he can't get away, and I start preaching away at him. And man, like, he was just this arrogant guy, right? This snot-nosed kid, who thinks like he's got life figured out. He gave me no wiggle room, his heart was closed, rejected me like very rudely. I came back and uh, to be honest, I remember driving home and feeling like I, I, I failed a, a bit. You know, I, I, I didn't do my work. I disappointed Susan. I, I didn't do a great job and, and now he's not a Christian because I didn't cogently, faithfully, persuasively present the gospel to him. That is my resident legalism that's still in my heart today that needs to be mortified because salvation is not up to us. Christian maturity is not up to us for ourselves and others. That's a man-centered perspective. The theology of the cross perspective is the spiritual truth is revealed by the will and revelation of God. Spiritual truth is revealed by the will and revelation of God. It is up to God. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for, ble- for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but, my, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus says, the source of this revelation to you, Peter, is not yourself. It's not because you're smart, you figured this out. It's not because you're observant, you saw my miracles and you connected the dots. It's not because of your intelligence or your discernment that you're able to conclude to this truth. No, you're blessed because this is a spiritual truth that cannot be ascertained through human effort. It is impossible by man. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You are the teacher of Israel. You are the leading expert of the Old Testament and you are blind to the simple truth of regeneration, the need to be born again. It is impossible by man. 
Peter, you have this faith because it revealed, was revealed to you, but by my Father in heaven. The Father did this personally, and he has done a work of grace, a miraculous, supernatural work in your heart, Peter, so you are blessed. So, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian today, do you know how blessed you are? If you are thinking, when will God ever bless me? When will God ever answer my prayer? When will God ever make a way for me? What about me? Do you not realize Jesus calls you blessed because the Father himself revealed his most precious truth to you that is impossible for us. It is like a mountain before us, yet God did it. He has broken through through our, our hardened hearts and revealed to us the identity of Jesus, that he is our Messiah and that he is the son of God that God gave on our behalf. That's what Paul said in Galatians 1. This gospel pleased the father to reveal his son to me. How did I become a Christian? The father, it pleased him to reveal his son. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, that is why neither he who plants or neither he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. It's not, right? the crucial issue is not the sowing or the watering. The crucial issue is God causing it to grow. The third difference is in verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And I don't want to, it's important, but it's not beneficial for our use of our time today to go through the interpretive issue of Petros and Petra and whether it refers to Peter or his statement of faith or the apostles. Suffice it to say, what Christ is saying is I'm establishing myself in the foundation of the apostles and their confession of the gospel. The key point, the key difference between the two perspectives is that Jesus will build his church. The man-centered view is that the church is dependent on people to grow and continue. The theology of glory says that the church is what it is today because of this person or these group of people or these individuals or these, this, this church it's, it's, it's dependent on, on, on a group of people. They are the reason for the health, vitality, and the effectiveness of ministry. That is uh, a man's interview. That is theology of glory. That is, uh, that is arrogance. That is just complete foolishness. Man says, uh, God needs us. The church needs us. The church needs me. No. The theology of the cross humbles man. The theology of the cross puts Christians in their place. It puts me in my place. Jesus said in verse 18, I will build my church. The church is dependent on Christ alone to grow and continue. 
Christ alone. Pastor John MacArthur said this, by human reason, persuasiveness, and diligence, it is possible to win converts to an organization, a cause, a personality, and to many other things, but it is totally impossible to win a convert to the spiritual church of Jesus Christ apart from the sovereign God's own word and spirit. Human effort can produce only human results. God alone can produce divine results. Jesus says, I'm not interested in building an earthly kingdom, a human institution. My interest is to build the true church, the invisible church. And he promised Peter, and through the scriptures, he promises us that he will build his church. He is, the church belongs to him. He is the architect, builder, owner, and Lord of his church. Let me, um, it'd be helpful to give give you an illustration to kind of give you guys up to speed and reconnect with you. This illustration is more for the people that are young at heart. So those of you that are older at heart, I apologize. So years ago, I discipled this high school student, sophomore in high school, the student at Loyola High School. I don't know how I, through friends, I connected with him. I did a small group Bible study with him. And I remember, remember going to his house and hearing him play guitar, and it was like, he was a musical genius. Well, subsequently, he went to Korea and became a pop star. Right? His name is Jay Chung, and he was a band member of Solid, right? <laughs> Not Solid, but Solid. Uh, <laughs> became very popular, right? But then after a few years, he kind of faded from the scene, and I, I found out he's now a producer. He's a composer. He's got his own like a record company. And this is what I suspect happened, right? You look at the bands that he's like overseeing, and like you look at the credits, and he's the composer. This guy is talented. He's the composer. He is the lyricist. He's the producer. I mean, he like... Uh, oversees the, the group, he does everything. But the problem is, he's in his mid-30s, and his hair's receding, right? he gained some weight, he's got a pot belly. He can't be up in front and do music for K-pop because you know the teeny boppers aren't gonna follow this guy who's like middle-aged. So he does all, everything behind the scenes. He writes everything but, maybe he might, he might even sing the songs for them, right? <laughs> All these guys do is go up, they have a pretty face, right? Nice haircut, good clothes, they're, you know, slim, and they, they like, uh, they mouth the music, and he does the rest, right? And that's his setup now because of his advanced age. Well, poor illustration, but that is similar to what is happening in the church, right? Not that, you know, the Lord is like receding hairline or anything, but, you know, I'm just you know, a figurehead, right? Like this message, if there's any goodness in this message, it's not because of me, but because of the one who spoke it, right? It's the content, it's the Bible. If there's any benefit, any goodness, any power in, in any church, it's not because of the people that are up front that you see, feel, and touch. No, the real power is behind the scenes, which is God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. The church is not dependent on any man, right? 
The church is dependent on only one, and that is Jesus. And he promised through the scriptures that because the church belongs to him, he will build her. He will birth her, build her, establish her for, for perpetuity until his return. And the gates of Hades will not overcome her, meaning the gates of, of, of death, of ensnaring people away from life, will never overcome the true church. Jesus himself will preserve the elect. Christians, he will hold, build, and keep till his return in heaven. Now, this is the culmination, if you will. This is the last point, what I've really learned so much in my sabbatical. Fourth difference is crucial, and and the man-centered view is not directly stated, but I believe it is implied. The theology of glory perspective is that the way to grow the church is by way of power, wisdom, and strength. The way to prosper the church is through wisdom, power, and strength. Crystal Cathedral and Robert Schuller is in the news a lot about the struggles that they're going through. Church historians say that if anyone uh, should be credited with the church growth movement, the whole seeker-sensitive, pragmatic philosophy of ministry in modern America, it should be Robert Schuller. And Robert Schuller would agree uh, with this point that the way to grow the church is through power, strength, and wisdom. He stated this, an undisputed fact is that I am the founder, really, of the church growth movement in this country. I advocated and launched what has become known as the marketing approach in Christianity. The secret of winning unchurched people into the church is really quite simple. Find out what would impress the non-churched in your community and then shape your church to meet their expectations. A few more quotes. There is no problem or situation that cannot be solved. Success awaits the man who will never say never. This is what I think our ministry is all about. Helping people realize they can become more than they ever thought they could be. I believe in positive thinking. It is almost as important as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, what we need is a theology of salvation that begins and ends with a recognition of every person's hunger for glory. The Christian faith and and life is a gospel designed to glorify human beings for the greater glory of God. So the theology of glory's perspective is you grow the church by by strength, through power, and empowering people to have successful, better, better lives. The theology of cross says this, the way to grow, way to birth and grow the church is by suffering and death. The way to birth and grow the church is by suffering and death. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things 
from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So our Lord um, took them to, a, to understand deeper truths about his mission. He unveiled a bit more about the specifics of why he came on earth. Previously, he spoke uh, here and there about his rejection, about crucifixion. He talked about being um, in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights in Matthew 12. He alluded to his death in John 2.19, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He spoke of his burial in John 12, verse 7. But here, he speaks in explicit terms. He told them he must go to Judea. He must, must go to the heart of Judaism, Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. He must go to the, the heart of the power of the Jewish authorities whose hostility against him will increase where he will suffer and be executed. The triad of leaders are presented here. The elders, chief priests, and scribes, they will conspire against Jesus and he will suffer and he will die. And this must happen. This is why he has come. There is no plan B. This is plan A. This is the only plan. And this is what he is committed to do And then through suffering and death, he will be raised on the third day. This tells us the theology of the cross, the way is through suffering and death. Uh, This doesn't make sense to us. This doesn't add up. Because in all the stories that I've heard, you've heard, all the TV shows we've seen, the movies we've seen, the end... It ends with the, the, the good guy stands. The righteous person, the person who was standing up for righteousness, he's the one who stands. And all the villains, right, they're the ones who are beaten up or killed, strain, strewn on the ground. That's how it should work. Right? But God's way is higher than our ways. Our Lord... Um, Though he was right and he was righteous. He was so right, there is not enough books in the world to document all the right things, beautiful, miraculous things he did, all the teachings he gave. There's not enough books to contain them all, John 20. Even though he was right and righteous in every way, uh, he suffered and died. Why? Because that's his way of entrusting himself to the Father. Because this is God's plan. This is God's economy. This is, how, this is God's ways. This is how God works. Jesus was right, but even though he was right, he knew his way was suffering. And so he entrusted himself to the Father his whole life, his whole ministry. And on the cross, what happened? He said, Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust myself to you. And then 50 days later, what happened? God sent the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, Peter preached. 
he preached the gospel. These religious leaders who murdered Jesus heard this. And in Acts 2.37, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The word cut, it's, it's the only time in the New Testament it's, it's used. It, it, it denotes to pierce or penetrate with a sharp instrument. It means to pierce with grief and to actually experience acute pain of any kind. It also implies the idea of sudden as well as great grief. They were suddenly and deeply affected with anguish. They were, their hearts were pierced. They were cut up as they realized what they had done. They realized they had murdered the Messiah. They realized having done this, how they did this through crucifixion. They also realized what they did couldn't be undone. And not only that, the crucified Lord is risen, is alive. And they, were, they were fearful of his wrath. They were cut to the heart. They cried out, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And more than 3,000 were added to the number that day. This is what I'm learning. This is how the gospel goes out, goes forward. This is how the gospel advances this is how the gospel goes forth to reach those who are righteous in their own eyes, is by suffering of believers. Right? Jesus was right, he suffered. He allowed the Father to be the Father, and the Father in his time, 50 days later, sent the Spirit to save those who persecuted Jesus. In Acts 7, Stephen was right. Stephen believed, what he believed, what he said was true. But God wanted to save Paul. So even though Stephen was right, he suffered and he died. And many days later, Paul on the road to Damascus was cut to the heart. His heart was pierced. And he saw what he had done. And I think for the rest of his life, Peter never forgot that he murdered Stephen, that he was the reason for the first martyr in Christianity. How God used Stephen's suffering, even though he was right and righteous, Stephen suffered so that Paul might be saved. And so Paul, his suffering was um, proof of his faith, genuine faith. His sufferings, his weaknesses, his difficulties were validations that he was a true apostle of God. See, false apostles do not suffer, right? They are powerful, they're, they're wise, they live up here, right? They, they, they don't allow any accusations to, to stick, right? They, they are so assured of their righteousness, they protect themselves, and they avoid controversies, avoid pain and suffering. And Paul says that is proof that they're not true followers of Christ and true apostles. The evidence that I'm a true apostle is that I am suffering with joy. 
I am embracing it. I am delighting in it because he knows God's ways. He knows that as he joyfully submits himself to God, the sufferings that God has given to him, God in return sends the Spirit to Paul and to others for the furtherance of the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, and hear this, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that as in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, Paul understood and believed. How is God going to reach the lost, reach the elect? How is the gospel going to go forth? It's through suffering and through death, not through comfort, not through ease not through pleasures of this world. Therefore, Paul endured these sufferings with joy for the sake of the elect. All the more, Paul boasted of his sufferings. Paul was unlike Jesus. Jesus had no weaknesses. He had no sins. Paul had sins. Paul had weaknesses. When people threw these charges against Paul, it stuck because they were true. But how did Paul respond? Paul responded by boasting in, in them, right? acknowledging them, confessing them, rejoicing in them. For when we are weak, we are strong in Christ. How does that work? When we are weak, we are letting God be God. God is saying, you be you. I'll do my work. I'll send the Spirit. I am sovereign. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. You do your part. I'll do my part. Don't tell me what to do. Your part is to trust me and suffer. Your part is to stay in there and rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that, God, I am sovereign, knowing that I am working, knowing that I do love you, and I am... I'm, I'm working, I am, I'm, I'm caring for you. I'm doing this for your good, for the good which is to become like Christ. Therefore, you do your part by trusting, obeying, and suffering with joy. And when you do that, then I'll do mine. Well, I might continue this next week, but Peter's response reveals um, the power of the theology of glory, how, pow how powerful pride is. Right? Jesus said this, and what did Peter say? Peter took him aside, verse 22, and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you. This shall never happen to you. This shall never happen. Never, Lord. I will not allow this. This is presumptuousness. This is... Love gonna rye. This is sinful love, sinful care. This is, he, Peter's not loving Jesus. He's loving himself. 
If he loved Jesus, he will say, yes, Lord, go to the cross, for I need to be saved of my sins. But because he loved himself, he says, I, will, I don't want to see you suffer. My will be done, not God's will. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus replied to Peter, is get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Peter, the quickest fall in the, hum- in the history, human history, he went from, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, to get behind me, Satan. Right? Not that he was possessed by Satan himself, but he is representing Satan's philosophy, theology of glory, a man-centered perspective of rejecting suffering. Jesus says, no, get behind me. Get away from me. Or what you just said is not, your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, theology of glory is not like, it's a, it's a minor defect in our philosophy and our perspective and our viewpoint. It's not just a paradigm that we need to shift a little bit to get it more in line with scripture. This man-centered, this theology of glory perspective is satanic. It is anti-God. It angers God. You are thwarting. You're hindering the work of God, God's will and God's ways. You are opposed to God. Therefore, God is opposed to you when you don't want to suffer because of self-love, when I don't want to suffer because of self-love, when you, because of self-love, you don't want your spouses to suffer. As Christians, God has come to suffer for it because he loves them and you are trying to, to stop that process because of your sinful love. God wants your children to suffer, your care group members to suffer, your friends to suffer because that's the way to resurrection. And yet, because of your sinfulness, you want to get in there and take control, exercise your influence, and you want to be in charge to keep people from suffering and yourself from suffering when you're doing that, when I'm doing that. We are hindering the work of God. Our mindset is not on God's mindset. It's a man-centered, self-centered mindset. So three closing thoughts. Do we see how we're all schizophrenic? Let's not be so harsh on Peter. What an incredible fall. Within a matter of 20 seconds, he went from blessed to Satan. But that's me every day. That's me hour by hour. That's me like 20 times a day. I go from being blessed to being Satan. That's why we desperately need the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray so earnestly. Because without the Holy Spirit, we hinder God. We are opposed to God. We have the perspective of God's enemy. We are not standing firm, secure, and nothing can blow us away. No. At any moment, we not only fall, we fall to aid the enemy against God's ways, God's will, God's thoughts. Let Peter be a vivid reminder of that to all of us. Secondly, um, concerning our church, right? You know, a brother said to me this past week, or at BBS, James, like, I don't want you to suffer. 
I know it's, it's hard for you going through all these things. It's tough. I don't want you to suffer. And then I almost said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I would have felt, you know, but it was too serious and I didn't want to hurt the brother. But I explained this passage. You know, I know you, you, you care for me. I appreciate that. Give me a hug right here. I, man, I'll love, brother. But that's not, that's not God's will. And for you to love me in this, that way, it's not, it's not loving God. It's not loving me. You should say, James, suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Stand, stand and suffer and receive and, and receive with joy, right? Knowing that because of this, I am better than I was three weeks ago, three months ago, six months ago, six years ago. And our church, we're better than we were three weeks ago, six weeks ago, six months ago because of these very sufferings, right? This is God's love for us nothing else. And also understand that my suffering is different than Jesus' suffering. My suffering is the suffering of the thief on the cross. Right? What did the thief say? We are receiving our deserving punishment. I'm crucified, but I deserve this because I rebelled against Rome. I'm a sinner. I am receiving justice. Right? That's my heart sufferings that I'm going through, right? It's because of my own sins. All the more, right? I suffer with joy. I receive everything that God has for me with freedom and joy. You know, what had, let me shepherd you and open my heart a little bit. You know, all these years, things that came my way First of all, I didn't want to suffer. I don't like suffering. I love myself way too much. I have inordinate self-love. Secondly, all these things came my way. I always saw one or two things that where I was right. right. So like 20 things came, and there was like, oh no, those two things, I'm right in those two things. And so because of those one or two things, I shouldn't suffer because I'm right. And my righteousness and my rightness deceived me and hardened my heart towards suffering. By God's grace, I see even if, if Jesus was right and he suffered, he was righteous perfectly and he suffered and died. And Stephen and Paul, how much more as a sinner I must not reject suffering, difficulties, right, disappointments, struggles. No, all the more as a sinner deserving of these things, how much more I should receive with joy. Right, Jesus went to the cross, not you know, begrudgingly, not with anger or frustration. He went with joy, Hebrews 12. Right? That is true trusting in Christ, in God the Father. How much more ought I trust the Father? So if you love me, if you love the leaders, if you love our church, you will pray, God, take us through the refining fire. Lord, take our leaders and James first and foremost, have him suffer and receive your chastisement because that is your love and that is how you glorify yourself. Third and finally, we hope, and that's what we've heard from you as well, that we hope that that is the example we're setting before you. That the example that we're setting as your leaders is not sinlessness 
or perfection or man, we live up here, right? Carefree, problem-free, conflict-free lives. You know, we live up here and you guys live down here. I hope that's not the example that we're setting before you. I hope the example we're setting before you is, man, we're in there with you and all the messiness of life and our sins and relationships and suffering in this world. But the example we're setting hopefully is how we are responding to our own sins and sins of others, our own weaknesses, others' weaknesses, our failings and others' failings. How are you responding? I hope the example we're showing before you is, um, is that we're trying to respond by faith, by joyfully suffering. So is that your perspective today? Is your perspective as a believer the way for you to grow the way for you to experience the riches of gospel grace is through suffering and death. Right. Or are you resisting that and your, your monologue, internal monologue is, I don't deserve this. This is not fair. That other guy, he's more wrong than I am. She should suffer, not me. I am right. That person's wrong. I should be vindicated. That person should be convicted then that shows your agenda is yourself. If that's in your heart coming out, your agenda is comfort, right? self-promotion, your, your own righteousness. But if your agenda is the gospel, then you'll say, God, I want to let you be God. I trust you. You gave your son for me. My job is to trust, obey, and submit and suffer. And as I do this, you might do it in a day. You might do it in a year. You might do it in 40 years. I know, though, you will do it ultimately in heaven. You will. You love justice. You love truth. You love sanctifying your people. Your will will be done. Therefore, I will trust you, and I will just do my part and suffer as a good and faithful soldier of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for what you are teaching us. And I thank you so much for what you are teaching me what you are teaching our leaders. We have indeed taken our eyes off of the cross, taken our eyes off of the author and perfecter of our sins. And we confess we have put our eyes on man. We have trusted in ourselves, our knowledge and our abilities. And so, Lord, this is your way of pulling us back to you. It's your kind gracious, gentle way of displaying your tender, affectionate, long-suffering love toward us and towards me. So Lord, you grant us faith and grace not to run, not to hide, but to stand with you and go outside the camp where you were crucified. Stand with you and suffer with you so that we might experience 
the beginnings of the power of the resurrection here and now and ultimately when you return in heaven forever. Lord, may your will be done on earth and in our church, in our lives, as it is done in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.